Hebrews 2, 16 to 18. Here is what the author of Hebrews is saying about Jesus. For indeed, he did not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be, made, to be made like his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. Amen? Let's actually read this three verses one more time. It is so deep and it's so good. Let's just try to read it slowly, meditate on the words, and see what um, the author of Hebrews is telling us. I want to encourage you, if you can, as we go through uh, the book of Hebrews very slowly, two or three verses a week, I would encourage you to try to memorize the two verses that we study every week. I think you're going to bless your heart so much. It's not really hard to memorize the whole book if you get to that point. In America, we, we're not based on memorization. I grew up on a British education system, so memorization is just what we do. But honestly, it's just knowing God's word is so powerful. And if you can do it just a couple of verses at a time, it's not really that hard. Um, let's read this together and just think about the words that you're reading. It is just so powerful. Let God's word just sink in your heart and your mind and cleanse it. For indeed... He does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, look how powerful that is. In all things, he had to be made like you and me. Isn't that wonderful? He had to be made like you and me in every aspect. That he might be merciful and faithful high priest. Think about that. Your high priest is both merciful and and faithful. That's just such a peaceful thought. In things pertaining to God, to make a propitiations for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, yet he is able to aid those who are being tempted. Amen. So again, we're talking about the supremacy of Christ in the book of Hebrews. We already discussed Jesus' supremacy over the prophets in chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. And today we're going to close the author of Hebrews' argument for Jesus' supremacy over the angels. Uh, the author of Hebrews demonstrated the supremacy of Christ over the angels from the Old Testament, from chapter 1, verse 5, all the way to chapter 14. And he also demonstrated the supremacy of Christ over the angel in spite of his humility and incarnation in chapter 2, verse 5, all the way to the end of chapter 2. And again, what uh, we have been talking about is this. In this part of chapter 2, the author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is supreme, better and far more superior than all the angels for two things. Number one, his humility was temporary in its nature. Jesus was made lower than the angels only for 33 years, and then he ascended on high to be far much higher than the angels again. But even though his, temporary, his, his humility was temporary in nature, it was eternal in its purposes. Amen? And the author of Hebrews presented five different eternal purposes of God that was accomplished through the temporary incarnation of the Son of God. Number one, 
Through death, Jesus takes his death on behalf of everyone. That's uh, chapter 9, the last part. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 9, the last part. Number 2, he was perfected as the captain of our salvation through suffering. And that's verse 10. Number 3, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. That's verse 11 to verse 13. And number 4, which we talked about last week, he destroyed the one who has the power of death and released those who, because of the fear of death, lived all their lifetime subject to bondage and today we're going to close with the fifth and final eternal purpose that the author of Hebrews is mentioning here that was accomplished through, through the temporary incarnation of the Son of God and that is that Jesus might become both merciful and faithful high priest. Amen? So let's dig deeper into all of these three verses. Verse 16, it starts by saying this, For indeed he does not give aid to angels. Again, we talked about this. The word for meaning that he's linking what he's going to say now with what he had just said before, right? And what did he say in verses uh, 14 and 15? He said that Jesus has come down from heaven. He was fully human, just like you and me, to destroy the devil and release those who are, because of the fear of death, lived all their lifetime subject to bondage, right? So now that the author of Hebrews is going to explain more, go deeper into that and explain how Jesus, through his humility, is able to set free those who are, um, because of the fear of death, lived all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he gives aid to the seed of Abraham. What does the word give aid here means? The word give aid literally can mean get hold of, like to hold somebody's hand or something to that effect. And it was mentioned one more time also in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 8, 9. In Hebrews 8, 9, the author of Hebrews is quoting as a scripture from Jeremiah. And here is what it says in Hebrews 8, 9. God is speaking to the children of Israel about his promise and his covenant. And he said, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, not according to the covenant which I had made with their fathers in the day which I took them by hand to lead them out. That whole verb right here, take them by hand to help them out is the exact same verb that the author of Hebrews used here in chapter 2, verse 16, to say, Jesus does not give aid. He does not hold by the hand to help angels, but he holds by the hand to help the seed of Abraham. Amen? Amen. So that is the same word that the author of Hebrews used later in chapter, nine, in chapter 8, verse 9. And remember, this is a quote from Jeremiah, right? And the Septuagint used the exact same Greek word. And the idea here is this, that children of Israel were captive in the land of Egypt, right? They lived under bondage, right? God came through, he held them by the hand, and he took them out of the land of Egypt, right? And the author of Hebrews is using the exact same verb here to talk about how God is delivering those who lived in the bondage of the fear of death, right? He's drawing a parallel in a way between how the children of Israel lived under the bondage of the Egyptian and God came through took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt and how Jesus also has came through in the New Testament hold by the hand those who because of the fear of death lived all their lifetime subject to bondage and he led them out into the exact same freedom and liberty that the children of Israel has experienced in the Old Testament. Amen? But what Jesus, the, per, the people that Jesus delivered, the group that Jesus sets free is not angels. It is the seed of Abraham. What is or who is the seed of Abraham that the author of Hebrews is talking about here? 
He's talking about you and me, right? We are, the New Testament believers are the, the spiritual seed of Abraham. Paul told us that in Galatians 3, 7. He said, therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. We are the spiritual seed of Abraham. Amen? Romans 4, 16. So still talking about Abraham. And it says, therefore, it is faith that, um, they're talking about Abraham again. Therefore, it is faith that it might be a that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all that seed. He's talking about Abraham and his seed. Not only to those who are of the law, which is the nation of Israel, the physical seed of Abraham, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, that he might be father of all. So what Paul is telling us is this, those who are of the law, then the, the physical seed of Abraham, the nation of Israel, and those are of faith, which is you and me, the Gentiles, when we both believe in Jesus, Abraham becomes father of all to those Jewish believers who converted and the Gentiles who also converted. Amen. So even though the nation of Israel is the physical seed of Abraham in the New Testament, the church has been replaced that in a spiritual sense, and we are the spiritual seed of Abraham. And that's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. Remember, he's linking it to what he just said. He's saying, because Jesus became fully human, just like you and me, shared flesh and blood, just like you and me, because he experienced everything we can do. He is now the one who can deliver you and me, the believers. He's the one who delivered us, held us by the hand, and took, out, took us out of the bondage of the fear of death so that we might experience his freedom. Amen? He doesn't do that to angels. Why? Because angels don't die. They don't have the fear of death, do they? Right? The people, the group that has the fear of death is not angel. It is human. You and me. The ones that Jesus has become just like them. You and me. So that he can set us free from the bondage, the fear of death. Amen? Amen. So indeed, he does not give aid to angels. But he gives aid to the seed of Abraham. This is just powerful. Think about that. Jesus is able and willing to hold you by the hand and set you free from the bondage that you can live in because of that fear of death. Now, verse 17. Now, the author of Hebrews saying, Therefore, in all things, he, has, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sin of the people. Now, the first word is, uh, therefore. What does this word tell us? Tells us that what is coming now is the conclusion of what he has been discussing, right? Now he's going to conclude the matter. Now, what is the author of Hebrews concluding? You can look at it one of two ways. You can look at it that he's concluding his argument that he started in verse 14 when he said that Jesus became fully human like you and me so he can... Destroy the devil and set the captives free. Now he's concluding that thought with verse 17, right? Or you can look at it that he's concluding his argument from all the way verse 6, chapter like chapter 2, verse 6, when he's talking about the eternal benefits that has been accomplished through the temporary incarnation of the Son of God, right? And he has been mentioning one after one after one after one, and now he's concluding that whole chapter, that whole argument with these two verses. 
Which one is he thinking about? I don't know. Your guess is just as good as mine. Amen? But this is one of the two options that probably he, the author of Hebrews is getting to here. And look at this. Therefore, in all things he should have, right? He could have, he might have, be made like his brethren, right? Does it say that? He what? He had to be made like his brethren. He had to. Think about that. Jesus had to be made like you and me. When it says he had to be made like you and me, does that tell us that he had the option not to be? It was an obligation, a moral obligation that he had to be like you and me in every, every single aspect. That again tells us that the cross and the incarnation of Christ was the only way for you and me to be saved, right? If there would have been no other way than Jesus' incarnation for you and me to be set free from the bondage of the fear of death, then guess what? Jesus didn't have to be like you and me in every, every single aspect, right? Because there is another way, there is another option. If there is another option, he doesn't have to. There's no obligation or mandate that he has to do it this one way. The reason why Jesus had to be made like you and me because there was no other way for him to be both a merciful and faithful high priest except in that he would like you and me in every possible way. Amen? And he had to be like who? Like his brethren. That's what the author of Hebrews has been telling us throughout chapter 2. That we are the brethren. Because Jesus now is fully, has become fully human. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. That's why he said in verse 11 and verse 12. And in verse 14 he said that he became like you and me in every possible way. And as much as you are of made of flesh and blood Jesus also in the exact same manner was made of flesh and blood. That's why He's not ashamed to call us brethren because he was made like us in every possible way. Now look at this. He had to be made like his, his brethren in every aspect or in every possible way. Jesus had to be like you and me. Amen? Had to. Again, the emphasis here is there is no other way except him being fully like us for us to be saved. Right? Remember earlier in verse 10... The author of Hebrews said that it was fitting for God, right? Fitting for the one from whom everything and by whom everything. And bringing so many sons to glory that he might perfect the, ca the captain of their salvation through suffering, right? In verse 10, the author of Hebrews was telling us that the incarnation of Christ and his cross and his death on the cross was fitting for who God is, right? It was fitting for the fact that God is holy, that God is just, that God is merciful and gracious in the same time. And in order for the perfection and the majesty of God not to be compromised, it was fitting, it fits who God is, that Jesus will become fully human and die on the cross for you and me. Amen? Here, the author of Hebrews implying that it was fitting also for us, as wicked, as weak, as evil, as, as gullible as we are falling in sin. It was a must that our Savior should be like us in every possible way. Are you guys with me? So the fact that Jesus was fully God, he became fully human to go to the cross. He was fully human like you and me. And then he goes to the cross to suffer and die. That was the perfect fitting for God in a way because Jesus is on bar with him. And for us 
us in a way because Jesus became on bar with us. Amen? He's the only one who can accomplish the plan of salvation because he's the only one who can match the requirement of God and match the weakness of man in the same time. You guys are with me? This is just amazing. He had to be like his brethren in every possible way. Why? Here is the conclusion of everything. Amen? That he might be merciful and faithful high priest. Amen? Now, he's concluding why Jesus had to be like us. Because he had to be both merciful and and faithful high priest. He's introducing Christ here as both merciful and faithful. And in a way, if you look through the rest of the, the, the book, he's going to elaborate on that for the next two or three chapters in a way, but he's going to reverse it. He's going to talk first about how Jesus was faithful in chapter 3 and part of chapter 4. And then he's going to talk about how Jesus was merciful as a high priest. So he's going to elaborate on that phrase for about two or three coming chapters. Amen? And we're going to look into that as well. But Jesus Jesus is a merciful high priest. This is emphatic in the way it was put in the Greek, the, the Greek construction of that word. The idea here is this, because Jesus is just like you in every possible way. Therefore, he can relate. He can understand. When you come to him with a problem or an issue or a need, because he has been there, he can relate to that particular need and he can be merciful. You guys are with me? Like, for example, I'll tell you an example. If you have two poor people, really, really poor people, who have been absolutely out of money and struggle even to find their meals, and then one of, get, one of them gets filthy rich, okay? And then the, other poor, the, the one who's still poor goes to the one who became filthy rich and says, hey, you know what, I, can't, I, I need some money because I need to eat. I can't afford my next meal. I don't even know where, where it's going to come from. Because the one who's rich now have been there and know the hunger and know this person and know that he's trying, he just cannot make it, he will have more sympathy on him. You guys are with me? But if you go to somebody who's born in a, in a billionaire family and you go tell them, hey, I need money because I cannot afford my next meal, they'll say, you know, okay, whatever. They might give you money. They might not give it to you. But even if they give it, they're not give it to you because they understand the dire of your situation. They give it to you because they don't care about it. You guys are with me? And that's who Jesus is because he's just like you and me in every possible way. Therefore, when you come to him with your need, he can be merciful because he knows it. He understands it in a way he experiences it. That's why he can sympathize with you and he can understand you why and where you're coming from. Amen? But not only, not only merciful, he's also a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. It seems like that the author of Hebrews is splitting the character of Christ in two ways. In the relationship with man, Jesus is merciful. You guys are with me? Because he has been there. And in relationship with God, he is faithful in all things that is pertaining to God. So faithful to the point that he would rather endure the cross to accomplish God's plan of salvation than to bail out in what God has for him. This is how faithful he is. Amen? He looked at the cross and said, I would be faithful to God to what he commanded me to do so much so that I would rather go through the cross and be a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Amen? Now, he is both merciful and... I'm going to skip some of the stuff here. You can read it at home, but I'm just going to uh, go through some other stuff. He is both faithful and merciful. What? High priest. I didn't think about this before, but the book of Hebrews is the only book in the New Testament, in the Bible, that 
explicitly describe Christ as a high priest. I did not think about that before. I mean, you grow up, know that Jesus is our high priest. You think it's all over the scripture, but it is not really. It's mainly explicitly in the book of Hebrews. And right here in chapter 2, verse 16, that's the first time that explicitly the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our high priest. He has alluded to that before in the two chapters we have been studying. He has kind of referenced it a little bit, but he never explicitly mentioned it. The first time he alluded to it was in chapter 1, verse 3, when he said about Jesus that he has by himself purged our sin, which is the function of the high priest in the Old Testament. Amen? And in chapter 2, which we're reading, verse 9 to 11, at the very end, it says this, that he might by the grace of God taste death on behalf of everyone. Again, a function of the high priest. So he has been hinting, dropping hint in the past, that Jesus is our high priest. But this is the first time that he explicitly tells us that Jesus is our high priest. Amen? And this concept that Jesus is our high priest, it is so important. I think starting from chapter 5 all the way to almost the end of chapter 10. That's almost 5 chapters out of the 13. You guys are with me? This is a big chunk of the, of the book that he wrote. It all, these 5 chapters touches on the fact that Jesus is a high priest in one way or shape or form. Are you guys are with me? So this teaching that he has that Jesus is our high priest is... maybe 30% minimum, maybe 40% of the volume of the letter that he wrote discuss that concept and that teaching that Jesus is our high priest. Amen? He is both merciful and faithful high priest. And then it says in things pertaining to God so that he can make propitiation. Even though the high priest in the Old Testament have functions pertaining to men, but it seems like that the author of Hebrews here is only focused on the things that is pertaining to God when he discussed how Jesus is being our high priest. Amen? He is faithful in all the services to God to make what? Propitiation for the sins of the people. Let's flip back to these... uh, Two verses. I wanna. I want you to see what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's kind of climaxing, conclu- like leading through a logical process of things, so he can reach an ultimate climax of his uh, teaching here. So it say uh, verse sixteen. He had to be like even verse fourteen. He had to be made like his brethren in every aspect, right? And then in verse sixteen, he's concluding that because Jesus was like you and me in every aspect, therefore he can give aid to the seed of Abraham. Amen. And because he has been made like you and me in every possible way, verse 17, he's concluding even that further in verse 17 by starting by the word therefore. So he's even driving another conclusion. And he's saying, therefore, he had to be made like you and me that, that here's the conclusion again, he might be merciful and faithful high priest. You guys are with me? And why Jesus had to be more faithful and, and, and a merciful high priest, he's driving another conclusion that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. Amen? So he's driving conclusion from conclusion from conclusion to climax to that phrase that he might make propitiations for the sin of the people. You guys are follow me, right? This is the epic 
of everything he has been talking about throughout that chapter. Why Jesus had to incarnate. Why he had to taste the grace of God. Why it was fitting for the Father. Why he had to be like you and me. Why he's not ashamed, ashamed to call us brethren. Why he defeated Satan. Why he set the captives free. Why, why, why. Everything he's driving one conclusion after another to reach to that phrase. That he might be able to make propitiation for the sin of that people. Amen. That's the ultimate purpose of the incarnation of Christ. And that's why Jesus became human like you and me. That he might make propitiation for you and me. Now, the word propitiation, very interesting. We talked about this before. But there are three different Greek words for the word propitiation here. They all come from the same root. So they're not different in terms of like two different absolutely unrelated ways. Three different words all come from the same root that was mentioned in the New Testament. And each one of these words was mentioned twice. Two verses for each one of these two uh, words. We're gonna, I'm going to explain in a second. But the idea in every single time that word was mentioned is this. And we talked about this before. The word propitiation, what does it mean? It means that we sinned against God. And because God is holy, our sin has aroused the wrath of God over our sin. Imagine that there is a judge, a righteous judge, and then you break the law. Because you have willingly chose to break the law. You are under the penalty of the law. And that righteous, jealous judge want to execute the law and punish you. You guys are with me? That's precisely what you and me have done. We sinned against God in words, in deeds, and whatever. And because God is holy, His wrath is aroused, and now we are subject to the wrath of God. The word propitiation literally means to ease the wrath of God, to take away, to abolish, to put aside the wrath of God. That's precisely the whole point of the word propitiation. Amen? And the author of Hebrews is telling us here is this. Jesus came. He became human. He went to the cross. He died. He was like you and me in every possible way for the sole purpose of quenching the wrath of God, the judgment of God over your sin and my sin. Are you guys with me? Alright, so that's the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross. Now, the word was mentioned, three different words mentioned six times in the New Testament. The first word is the word helismas, helismas, which literally means propitiation, the covering, the atonement. It's a noun. You guys are with me? And it was mentioned twice in the New Testament. In 1 John 2, 2, it talks about Jesus and says this. He is our propitiation. He is our atoning sacrifice. He is our covering that covers our sins. So a holy and a righteous God cannot see it and therefore doesn't pour out his punishment on us. Amen? He is the atoning sacrifice. Helismas, that's the word here, for our sins. And not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. The second incidence is in 1 John 4.10. This is love. This is the climax of love. This is the definition of love. Not that we loved God, but He has loved us and He has sent His Son as a helismas, a toning sacrifice, a covering for our sins before His holy eyes. Amen? So that is the first word. The second word that is used in the New Testament is helisterion. Okay, you're going to be Greek scholars by the time we finish this. Helisterion. Now, the difference is also a noun, and it also translated propitiation in the New Testament. But there's a big difference between these two words. The first word, propitiation, the focus is on the act of propitiations. Are you guys with me? On the actual act of easing the wrath of God. The helisterion doesn't focus on the act, it focuses on the place on which the act is done so that the wrath of God can be 
quenish. You guys are with me? So the first word focus on the act. The second word focus on the place. And this was translated mercy seat a couple of times in the New Testament. That's the cover that covers the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Amen? Two twice was mentioned as well in the New Testament. The first one, Romans 3.25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Helisterion. The place in which the atonement take place. Are you guys with me? So Jesus was mentioned propitiation here. Also propitiation in John by the idea and the meaning is different. John was saying that Jesus is actual physical covering before the eyes of the holy and the righteous God. Are you guys with me? But Paul here is saying that Jesus is the place on which the atoning and the covering of our sins had took place. Amen? Same word was mentioned again in the book of Hebrews. We're going to read about it in a few weeks. Hebrews 9.5. Above the ark was the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. Helisterion. That's the mercy seat. But we cannot discuss these things in details right now. I'm not saying that. This is, this is what the books say here. I'm not, we cannot discuss these things in detail right now. I'm saying that as well. I cannot go in detail into this right now. You guys with me? All right. So... Um, and we talked about this in detail when we talked about how we have propitiation by the blood of Jesus about a couple of years ago or so. You guys are with me? Yeah. So there's two nouns and there's a verb that also use the word uh, translated as to propitiate. Um, that's the actual verb. And that is hilaskumai. Hilaskumai. Hilaskumai is the verb now. This is not a noun. This is the verb. And it was mentioned also twice in the New Testament. It was mentioned here in Hebrews 2.17 that Jesus, Hilaskumai, he has provided atonement. He has made atonement for the sins of the people through his own sacrifice. You guys are with me? And the second time that exact same word was mentioned is in Luke 18.13. That's the story that Jesus told us. How that the Pharisee and the tax collector went up to the mountain and to pray. And the Pharisee was so arrogant say, God, thank you. I'm not like everybody else. I'm not like this wicked uh, tax collector. But the, on the other hand, the tax collector under the burden of his sin did this. He said, and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much so raise his eyes to heaven. But beat on his breast saying, God, be merciful. That's the exact same Greek word, Hilaskumai. God, cover my sins. God, atone for my sins before you. My sins has provoked your wrath and I don't have a way out. Please cover me and take care of that because I have no other way. God, Hilaskumai, cover, atone for my sins for I am a sinner. You guys are with me? And that's the exact same Greek word that the author of Hebrews used here. Jesus has come so he can provide atonement, covering for our sins, to quench the wrath of God over your sins and my sins. Amen? Now, let's put this in the immediate context. Remember what he just said in verse 14 and 15. He said, In as much as the children have partaken in flesh and blood, that's you and me, he himself likewise shared the same. Why? That he might through death destroy the one who has the power of death. That is who? Satan. And what else he will do? Release those, that's you and me, who because of the fear of death lived all their lifetime subject to bondage. What is the fear of death? 
Really, the fear of death is this. When you die, you're going to face the wrath of God, right? Because you know you have sinned against Him. You know He might not be very happy because of your sins. And you don't know if your good works are not good enough. So what makes you scared about death and what's going to happen after death is the very fact that you're not sure if you might stand before a God who is holy and righteous and His wrath has already been ignited against you. You guys are with me, right? So Jesus, in order for Him to release people from the fear of death, what did He do? He became fully human like you and me. And because He was fully human, He is a merciful and faithful high priest that He Himself might provide the propitiation for your sins and ease the wrath of God over your sins once and for all. Quenish the wrath of God over your sins once and for all. Amen? Now that the wrath of God is gone over your sins, do you need to fear death anymore? No, because the wrath is gone, right? You know that God is not angry with you anymore. He's a, as a matter of fact, He's happy with you because of Jesus. Now that Jesus took care of the wrath of God on the cross, there is no fear of death anymore. Now you and me can be released from the bondage that we live in because of the fear of death. You guys are with me? Again, the whole chapter, he's climaxing to that phrase that through his cross, Jesus has made a propitiation from, for our sins, for the sins of the people. And because he quenished the wrath of God over your sins and my sins once and for all, now there is no fear of death anymore because of Jesus. Amen? Amen. This is good news. Amen? This is really good news. Verse 18. For in that he himself suffered, being tempted, is able to aid those who are being tempted. The word himself here is obviously emphatic. He's like emphasizing the fact that it was Jesus himself who suffered. Jesus himself who was tempted. Jesus himself was able to give aid to those who are being tempted. You guys are with me? Now, he has suffered being tempted. The author of Hebrews here is obviously, when he says suffered... From the immediate context, obviously, it seems like he's talking about the suffering of the cross, right? Because he just said that Jesus has made propitiation by himself for the sins of the people. How did Jesus do it? He did it on the cross. Right after that, he said, for what he suffered being tempted, he might be talking here, chances are he's talking here about particularly the suffering of the cross that Jesus has endured. Amen? But not only the suffering of the cross, he might now be expanding a little bit more, not just to the suffering of the cross, but the suffering and the temptation and the testing that Jesus has had throughout his own life. And he's saying the suffering that Jesus endured throughout, even though it climaxed on the cross, the temptations and the testing that Jesus has endured throughout, even though it climaxed on the cross, in a way enabled him to be merciful high priest. He now is able to give aid to those who are being tempted because he was just like us in every possible way. Amen? Now, the word has tempted in Greek is actually perfect tense. It perfect past tense means it, it's an event that happened in the past, but you can still feel the consequences of that event all or the rest of the time. Amen? Like when you say in English, I have bought a car. It's an event that you took in the past. You already bought the car in the past, but now you have the car every single day to drive and enjoy and you don't have to walk anymore. You guys are with me? That's the exact same idea here. Jesus had suffered once and for all on the cross, but the effect and the, the, the results of the suffering that he had is something that you and me can dig the benefit of every single day for the rest of our lives. Amen? Being tempted, he's able to aid those who are being 
tempted just like you and me. Again, the idea here is this. Because Jesus has been in our place. And he has been in our shoes. And he tasted and he tested and experienced everything that we experienced. Therefore, he is able to aid those. To give aid to those who are being tempted. Amen? Amen. Jesus, because he's tempted, he's merciful. He's been there. So he can sympathize. You guys are with me? You guys are with me? Now, here's the one thing about Jesus that is so good that the author of Hebrews is telling us here. Number one, he can sympathize, right? Because he has been there, right? If you have a high priest or, or, or a savior who doesn't sympathize, you come to him and say, Jesus, I, I, I'm just struggling and I don't know what to do. And he's like, just doesn't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> then, you know, this is a cruel high priest. This is a cruel savior, right? The flip side of that is also awful. If he can sympathize, but he cannot help, that's bad too. Because you can sympathize all what you want, but if he cannot help you, then he's a useless savior. You guys are with me? We need a savior who can be both. Who can sympathize, be merciful with our temptations. He understands where we are. But in the same time, he's also able to aid those who are being tempted. Are you guys with me? And praise God, Jesus is not either or. Amen? Because if he was either or, either one of these two options are bad for us. Amen? We need one who can be both and in the same time. He's both merciful and he's both able to help those who are being tempted. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, Jesus being tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Let me just tell you an analogy or a story. Imagine that you're an engineer. You build bridges, and that's what you do for a living. And then your boss, the one who you're answering to, is very good in management. He has a, an, an MBA. He doesn't know a squad about engineering. He has an MBA. Very good manager. He ran a multi-million dollars businesses before, and he really succeeded. And that's your manager. And now you're, like, you're an engineer. You're trying to do the drawing for the bridge. And then you're wondering about one of the columns. How, what is the degrees? I'm making stuff up. I don't even know what that makes sense. But anyways, you're wondering how, the column should it, how thick the column should be. And what is the angle that should actually maintain the weight of the bridge. And you're really not sure about what way to go and you're afraid that you might make the wrong decision and you go to your boss and say hey I'm not sure what is the angle of that column should be should it be 45 degrees or should it be 60 degrees and your boss never been to an engineering school for, for forever do you think this boss would be any good to you he will be nothing to you because he's never been there before. He doesn't even know the slightest clue about what you're talking about, right? He might be a great manager. He might be running the company like amazing. But the fact of the matter that he's never been to an engineering school, he does not have the slightest clue in what you're going through. Amen? And his advice to you is as good as Micah's, my own son, advice to you, right? Might as well go ask Micah. It's going to end up the same chances, right? But this is exactly the good thing about Jesus. When we come to him, because he has been tempted. Jesus is not just the divine son of the living God who lived in heaven all eternity, till all eternity. And he knows he created us and we're far away from him. And we come to him to our need. And then he say, all right, I'll do it for you. No, he has been where we have been. Amen. He also been to the engineering school. Amen. He knows how to build the bridge because he built so many bridges before. Amen. So when you go to him with your need, you know that he has been there. There, he's been tempted just like you, and he understands where you're coming from. He sympathizes with your need, and not only that, he's also able to give you the right advice. Amen? Amen? Amen. This is so good, and I'm so glad that Jesus is this way. He is able to aid those who are 
being tempted. Let's look at a couple of other things that Jesus is able to do. And then we'll close in prayer. Amen. Here we see that he's able to aid those who are being tempted. That's you and me. But we also see elsewhere in the scripture that he's able to save to the utmost. Amen. Think about this. Hebrews 7.25. Therefore he is also able to save to the utmost those who come to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Amen. He's able to give you aid. He's able to save to the utmost. Isn't that amazing? You don't have to worry about tomorrow. You don't have to worry about what Satan going to do to you in the, tomorrow. You don't have to worry about your own stupidity and making mistakes and sinning in the future. Jesus is able to save to the utmost. Amen? He doesn't save you for a year or two, a decade or two. He's saving you all the way till you arch into heaven. Amen? But number two, he's able to keep your soul. He's able to keep you. That's 2 Timothy 1.12. For this reason, Paul said, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is what? Able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Amen. And number three. Uh, number four, he's able to subdue all things under his own power. And that's in Philippians 3.21. Who will transform Jesus, our lonely body, that it, might, it, may be, it may be confirmed to the glorious, to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is what? Able even to subdue all things to himself. Amen. I don't know about you, but I have some good news for you today. Amen. Jesus, your high priest, is able. Amen. I don't care what's the problem, but I know that he is able. If you're hardening through a hard time, he's able to intercede. You can come to him with your financial need. He has been there. Amen. He didn't have a place to lay down his head, and he is able to aid. Amen. You come to him with your sicknesses and disease, and he's able to heal. You come to him with your guilt and shame, and he's able to forgive. Amen. Our high priest is both merciful and faithful, and he is able to aid those who are being tempted. Amen. Why don't we come to him this morning? Jesus' name.